Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning, and as he said, this was not planned until about 7 o'clock this morning, and so it is good, it is good to be with you, and I, I love it when everything works out uh, this way. And it was good to hear that uh, Sunday school was about Ephesians, because that's where we'll be this morning. So open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and we will read beginning in verse 10. And I was told I have an hour and a half, which is great. <laughs> I will take it. <laughs> Nervous laughter. I can tell. <laughs> I can tell. This morning... We are in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Please listen to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplates of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Let us pray together. Father, this morning we need you. We need the Spirit to come and be our teacher. And above all, we need the Lord Jesus to be exalted. And so we pray, Lord, that saints will be further sanctified, that sinners will be brought to repentance, that the Lord Jesus will be seen as glorious, beautiful, and mighty. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. This morning, we will be focusing on just one phrase, the helmet of salvation, the helmet of salvation. So, of course, the book of Ephesians is divided in two halves. You have the first half in chapters 1, 2, and 3, all about the indicatives, what God has done to save us. And then you have chapters 4, 5, and 6, and we call those the imperatives, what we are supposed to do, how we are supposed to live in light of what God has done for us in Christ. So we find ourselves this morning in chapter 6 in spiritual warfare. And brothers and sisters, we are constantly engaged in spiritual warfare. Whether you want it or not, whether you are fighting or not, you and I are always in spiritual warfare warfare. So let me give you a, a brief summary of the section we just read. In verse 10, the Apostle Paul called us to be strong in the Lord. Clearly, the battle is not something that we can endure on our own strength. Therefore, we must be strong in light of our union 
with the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are never independently strong. We are never independently strong. We can be strong only in the Lord, which further means that we are strong only insofar as we make much of the Lord Jesus in our lives. Then in verse 11, we were introduced to the armor of God. Once again, here Paul uses the imagery of a soldier heading into the battlefield. The idea, of course, is that no soldier would ever venture into the heat of the battle without being properly armed and protected. We understand that concept. The same is true of the spiritual battle, hence the need for the armor of God, which reminds us uh, that the idea of letting go and letting God is not a biblical idea. In other words, the pop song, Jesus Take the Wheel, is very misleading, to say the least. Yes, Jesus is in control of the car and all of the aspects of your driving, but by all means, keep driving. Keep driving. Whatever you do, don't take your hands off the wheel. Yes, faith is a gift from God, inwardly worked in us by the Spirit as we respond to God's written revelation, all that is true, but we must Take up, take up the shield of faith. We wrestle, we wrestle. It is a conscious act. It is a conscious act. There's, there's a critical element in spiritual battle which makes the armor even more necessary and essential. What is that element? It is what Paul refers to as the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil in verse 11. What are the schemes of the devil? Well, in a basic level, we're talking about satanic plans crafted in the mind of Satan himself for the purpose of disrupting, destroying, confusing, and harassing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is of utmost importance that we know what these schemes actually are. And these schemes are to be understood in light of each of the pieces of the armor of God. In other words, the armor of God itself gives us the answer as to what these satanic schemes are because the armor of God is God's provision in response to these attacks. So you don't have to guess what the schemes of the devil are. The armor of God actually answers what they are. What are the schemes of the devil then? Well, here they are. Satan desires to distort the truth. Therefore, what do we need? The belt of? Truth, very good. Very good. You're awake this morning. Satan desires to destroy righteousness. Therefore, we need the breastplate plate of righteousness. Satan desires to create conflict and division. Therefore, we need the shoes of the gospel of peace. Satan desires to produce pride and unbelief within us. Therefore, we need the shield of faith. This morning, I want to draw your attention to the fifth piece of the armor, namely the helmet of salvation. But as we consider this particular piece of the armor, it is imperative that we ask one critical question, which is the question that has been with us all along as we read this section. Let me work up to it. Up until this piece of the armor, the logic seems quite obvious. Satan attacks with falsehoods. Therefore, our protection is objective truth. 
Satan promotes unrighteousness. Therefore, our protection is righteousness. Seems quite logical. There is a pattern. Do you see it? Each satanic scheme is countered by each particular piece of the armor. So the piece of the armor itself reveals the specific scheme of the devil. And you can go down the list and easily identify very specific schemes of Satan. The critical question we are asking this morning concerning the fifth piece of the armor is as follows. What does the helmet of salvation protect us from? Right? The belt of truth protects us from falsehoods. Right? The breastplate of righteousness protects us from unrighteousness. What does the helmet of salvation protect us from? In other words, what is the specific satanic scheme we are dealing with when we speak of the helmet of salvation? Now, that's a good question, brothers and sisters. If we don't answer this one question, we won't understand the specific call Paul is extending to us this morning because the answer might not be as obvious when it comes to this particular piece of the armory. So let me explain the analogy that Paul is using or employing. Why a helmet? Why a helmet? Think with me about the massive importance we place on the health of our heads. Is your head important? Very important, right? I have a relative in Chile, my home country, who used to ride, ride uh, motorcycles. One day he had a nasty, nasty accident. He broke, I don't know how many bones in his body. His body was twisted in ways I can't even explain, but he survived. You know why? He was wearing what? A helmet, very, very good. His brain endured the collision, and he made a full recovery. I also remember growing up in Chile how our schools would uh, do earthquake drills. You may not know this, but Chile is one of the most seismic countries in the world, and that's where I come from. That's why I don't want to go back. I'm kidding. And the first thing that they would tell us during those drills was this. If we get hit by an earthquake... Get under your desk and put your hands and your arms over your head. Moreover, when my kids want to go for a bike ride around the neighborhood, we tell them two things. Don't go too fast and wear a helmet. In other words, it's okay if you break a bone or rip open your skin. Just don't mess with your head. Right? Clearly, the head matters. Clearly, we understand the delicate nature and the essential use of our heads. We seek to protect them at all costs. Obviously, however, the Apostle Paul is concerned not primarily with the physical head. In other words, he's not referring to a helmet for the material brain. When Paul talks about the helmet, he's thinking about a different type of head since his discussion is concerning spiritual matters. Therefore, Paul is speaking about what? The mind. The mind. He's addressing our thoughts. Our thoughts. Hence the analogy employed. That much is clear. What is not that clear at this point is this. Why is the helmet called the helmet of salvation? 
What I'm trying to get at is this. It seems that for the Apostle Paul, our thoughts and our salvation are somewhat connected. There is an intimate relationship between our thoughts and our salvation. But what is it? So let me expose the scheme of the devil here. Let me expose it for what it is. In order to see how the salvation is a helmet that protects our thinking, I need to help you see what the helmet of salvation is meant to protect us from. We need to expose the satanic scheme that stands behind the need for the helmet of salvation. And to do this, I will bring to your attention a word that is very much loaded, loaded with heavy, heavy connotations. This word represents a worldview, an ideology, the implementation of which can be utterly devastating. Can anybody guess what that word is that I'm thinking about out of the millions and millions of words that could be? It is a word that has been talked about for quite some time. And as of late, it has become central to many conversations. And believe me, this has everything to do with the helmet of salvation. I'm thinking of the word Marxism. Marxism. Do I have your attention? Marxism. Now, let me be clear that I do not bring this word to your attention for the sake of controversy. Rather, I have a very specific reason. Plus, I'm preaching as a guest, so that means I'm not coming back. <laughs> I want to show you how Marxism, as an ideology, can actually be proven to be a scheme of Satan himself, and how this scheme can shed light as to what the helmet of salvation actually is. I hope that as, as we do this, the connections will become clear. Some time ago, as I was reading an uh, academic journal, theological journal, I came across an article titled, Marx's New Religion. Marx's New Religion. In this article, the author explains how Marx, Karl Marx, and his ideas are still operative in the world. Primarily, Marx's philosophy known as materialism, materialism, which the author says, quote, forms the basis for the current governments of China, North Korea, and Cuba, among others, end quote. That's quite relevant if you ask me. Materialism comes from Marxism. What is materialism? Materialism, as the word implies, teaches that the world is made up of that which is what? Material or tangible only. And that that which is spiritual does not exist. To use uh, biblical language applied to humans, according to philosophical materialism promoted by Marx, the inner being, the inner being of which Paul spoke in Ephesians 3.16 does not exist. The inner being does not exist. We are all material beings of flesh Blood and bones, that's it. That's the end of who you are. It is all about the material. Our spiritual life is simply a physiological response to observation and experience, but there is nothing spiritual about us. What you see is what you get. Life stops at that which is visible and material, tangible. The immediate implication of this is that for Karl Marx... The greatest need of man is what? Is to have his material needs met. Once this is accomplished, harmony follows in society. Hence, Marx's desire to create conflict between what? 
the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor, the boss and the worker. Since man is a material being confined to a material-only existence, then man needs to fight for his material well-being, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, that's your job in life. And as the poor are able to get more and more from the rich, balance and harmony will be accomplished in society. But here's the main question. How did Karl Marx go about convincing people that this is indeed man's greatest need? How was Marx able to sell his radical idea to so many in the world? And he still is. Ideas have consequences. Here's a critical point. Don't miss what I'm about to say. The answer is this. If you are going to sell this radical idea of materialism to the world, you have to do something to people's minds. You have to do something to people's minds. You have to find a way to produce a different kind of thinking that will be conducive to the spread of this particular materialistic philosophy. And there's really only one way to do it. There's only one way to do it. You have to turn people into atheists. You have to turn people into atheists. You have to remove the idea of God from their minds. Therefore, Marx's philosophical materialism led to what the article that I was reading called coercive atheization, which means the, that atheism must be forced into people's thinking. Here's a relevant quote from the article that I'm, I'm mentioning, end quote. In order to build a kingdom of righteousness on earth, according to Marx, it is necessary to root out from the mind of humanity the illusory hope of a kingdom of bliss in heaven, end quote. The central idea for Marx then was this. For Marxism to work, you have to root out of the mind what? What do you have to root out of the mind? Get it out of the mind. The hope of heaven. The only way for Marxism to work in any society is if you can convince people this is it. There is no hope of heaven. If man is simply matter in motion, then matter is really all that matters. What is the point being made? What in the world does any of this have to do with the helmet of salvation? It has everything to do with the helmet of salvation, and here's why. The helmet of salvation, as I will seek to prove, has to do with two realities. Two realities. Your mind and your hope. Your mind and your hope. That's the point that Paul is making with the helmet of salvation. Therefore, if Marxism, along with its philosophical materialism, are truly about rooting out hope from the mind by convincing man that he's nothing more than matter in motion, then only Satan can stand behind that system. Marxism is satanic because it seeks to do what the helmet of salvation is meant to protect us from. Did you see that? 
Marxism is satanic because it seeks to do what the helmet of salvation is meant to protect us from. Let me see if I can prove it. As I said, the helmet of salvation has to do with two main realities. What were those? Your mind and your hope. Your mind and your hope. Why these two? Here's why. Listen to this. This is very critical. Your hope, your hope is fueled by what? Your thoughts. Your thoughts. Your, your hope is fueled by your thoughts. Wrong thinking can diminish, minimize, and in some cases even destroy hope. Proper thoughts are, therefore, the fuel of hope. That's why we need a helmet of what? Salvation. Where does the battle rages the fiercest? In your mind. Now, where do I get this from? First, I get it from the analogy itself. There's a reason why Paul used the helmet. He's addressing our thinking. But secondly... I get that from Paul's own words, which we, uh, we noted elsewhere. He wrote elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. The apostle Paul spoke of the helmet, but he qualified it even more. And he called it in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, the helmet of the hope of salvation. The helmet of the hope of salvation. Did you hear that? The helmet of the hope of salvation. This is the relationship then. This is why I bring Marxism into our consideration for this morning regarding the helmet of salvation. Listen to this. The helmet of salvation is hope fueled by proper thinking informed by God's promises. That's the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation is hope fueled by proper thinking informed by God's promises, all of which are immovable and unchanging. And that's what you and I need. Living in this chaotic, confused world, we need the helmet of salvation, a hope that is fueled by proper thinking, informed by God's promises, which never change. Never change. In other words, hope and biblically informed thinking go hand in hand. The two shall not be separated. Therefore, we can know with certainty, we can know with certainty that the spiritual battle in which we are all engaged and which the helmet of salvation helps us fight against is ultimately a battle for hope connected to our thinking. Consider once again the historical illustration of Marxism. What did Marx desire to remove? The hope of heaven. The hope of heaven. And from where did he desire to remove it? From the mind. From people's thinking. The helmet of salvation then is about proper thinking that leads to hopeful living. That is the helmet of salvation. Proper thinking that leads to hopeful living. Brothers and sisters, this is where the battle rages the fiercest. The mind is the main battlefield for in the mind, hope can be retained, increased, or diminished, and even lost. It is all in our thoughts, in our minds. This also exposes one of Satan's specific plots against us. Listen carefully. 
Listen carefully to this. Satan knows, Satan knows that hopefulness is rooted in proper thinking, which can only take place insofar as our thinking is consistent with the promises of God regarding our sealed destiny in Christ. Thus, if Satan can get you to think wrongly about it, then the door into hopelessness has been cracked open. Listen, my friends, if you're ever tempted to think that sermons in general or that the Bible in particular are impractical for daily life, then think again. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. How is your thought life? How is your thought life? Do you realize that that's one of the most intimate questions anyone can ask you? Thoughts cannot be seen, but you have them all the time. How is your thought life? Do you realize that this is without a doubt one of the most practical and important aspects of your Christian life is your thinking? Is your thinking. Why, you may ask. Here's why. You are always thinking. Even right now, you're thinking, how long is this going to take? You are always thinking. You're always using your thoughts. Therefore, therefore, listen to this, you are always fueling or depleting your hope. That's what the helmet of salvation is about. You're always thinking. No question about this. You're always using your thoughts. Therefore, you are either always fueling your hope or depleting it. We understand then that if hope is fueled by proper thinking according to the promises of God, much of the hopelessness and despair experienced by Christians at any given moment are the result of improper, misguided, and misinformed thinking. So I ask you again, how is your thinking? Hopelessness comes from an improper use of the mind. Hopelessness comes from an improper use of the mind. Or we could put it like this. Hopelessness is fueled by thinking that grows increasingly detached from the objective promises of God's word. I'm going to repeat that. Hopelessness is fueled by thinking that grows increasingly detached from the objective promises of God. The Bible has a lot to say about our minds. But especially, the Bible has a lot to say about this connection between proper thinking and our hope of salvation. So now I want to make an attempt at connecting these dots in a practical way. I want to see if I can help us think of the helmet of salvation in terms of our everyday life. And at this point, we'll ask the so what question. What are we to make of this? And in what ways are we, are we to act? This is a good place to transition into our final consideration. The commands implied. The commands implied. So when Paul says, take the helmet of salvation, what is he asking us to do? Here we're going to try to get practical. The taking of the helmet of salvation implies a multidimensional call. In a general sense, this imperative to take the helmet of salvation, which is to be understood as hope fueled by proper thinking informed by God's promises, is a call to the purposeful engagement of our minds in all things as a rule of life. 
the purposeful engagement of our minds in all things as a rule of life. And my brothers and sisters, this is a lifetime process. But that's a very general implication of the call to take the helmet of salvation. Let's dive a little deeper. I want to give you three further implications that we can gather from Paul's instruction regarding the helmet of salvation as we engage in spiritual battle. Here, here they are. Number one, you must develop. If you're going to take the helmet of salvation and be obedient to Paul's command, you must develop Godward mentality in the face of suffering. This is an element of taking up the helmet of salvation. You must develop a Godward mentality in the face of suffering. Taking the helmet of salvation means that even in suffering, we don't take our thoughts off of God. We always, he always remains our anchor. First Peter chapter 2, verses 19, 18 and 19. Listen to this. Servants or slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. Did you get that? Mind, he's talking to slaves. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Mindful of God. Mindful full of God. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, Peter says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Thinking. Do you realize how important your thinking is when it comes to the helmet of salvation? Suffering well as Christians has a lot to do with proper thinking, meaning thinking that is God word. We must arm ourselves with a Godward perspective on suffering. And suffer we will, my friends. Suffer we will. Number two, if we will take up the helmet of salvation and be obedient to the command of the Apostle Paul here, you must develop sober-mindedness in the face of chaos. Sober-mindedness in the face of of chaos. Christians, you, might, you must bring your thoughts under control. This is a part of taking the helmet of salvation. You must bring your thoughts under control. This is in part what it means to be sober-minded. Therefore, at a minimum, at a minimum, the helmet of salvation implies this essential truth. As a Christian bought by the blood of Christ and indwelt by the Spirit of God, you are never, listen to this, don't miss this point, you are never free to think as an independent, autonomous creature, but only and always as a disciple of Jesus under his lordship. Did you get that point? You are never free to think however you please. You are always to think under the lordship and the authority of Christ. Always. Always. You must think as a person under divine authority, which means you must develop thinking consistent with God's word and promises. You see, part of the, part of the problem with, with pornography, for example, is that when people engage with pornography, they are 
attributing to themselves themselves an authority that doesn't belong to them. Do you realize that? When, when someone engages in pornography, what they're saying to God is, yes, you are my Lord, but not over this area. I'm going to think however I want about sex. He's Lord of everything. Everything belongs to him. He bought you with his own blood. You must think as a person under divine authority, which means you must develop thinking consistent with God's word and promises and the authority of the Lord Jesus. When the Bible tells us to take every thought captive to obey Christ, it is not suggesting it. Christian, are you walking in obedience to Christ with regard to your thoughts? Are you honoring Jesus with your thoughts? How? Please notice with me how Peter tells us to do so. Don't miss this. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, we read these words. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Preparing your what? Your minds for action. How important is the mind? Yeah, it's critical. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope. Do you see the connection again? Thinking and hope. Let me read it again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, Peter tells us, therefore, to keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable. Can I be brutally honest with you? One of my great disappointments over the past several years with COVID and all the chaos that has come upon us one of my great disappointments has been to see how many Christians have responded to the chaos around us. So many seem to have lost their sober-mindedness. And they have given full bent, vent to their frustrations, their anger, and their pride. Don't allow, allow yourself to do that. Let me tell you this. You lose your sober-mindedness, you lose your influence in the world as a Christian. Put the helmet of salvation on by being sober-minded. Keep your thoughts under control and under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ by setting your hope on the grace that is to be revealed. Now, this leads me, leads me to the third and final command that we see here uh, concerning the helmet of salvation. You must develop, number three, pilgrim mentality. Pilgrim mentality in the face of opposition. Since the helmet of salvation is about fueling our hope of salvation through proper thinking informed by God's promises, then Satan's scheme in this regard will be threefold. And it's going to get a little tricky here, so follow me closely. Here's, here's the threefold attack of Satan. He will try to confuse our thinking for the sake of compromise so that we forget our hope. Let me try to be even more specific by using more technical terms. Now, don't worry if you don't understand some of these terms. I'm going to try to explain it. We need the helmet of salvation because Satan seeks to create, and here are the big words, okay? Don't, don't, get, don't worry about these words. He seeks to create epistemological confusion that leads to theological compromise which results in eschatological forgetfulness. 
Can you remember all that? Now, in considering this point, and before I explain it, I see the need to remind you of what we learned in verse 12 of chapter 6. In it, in verse 12, Paul explained to us that our wrestling is not against what? Flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces. In other words, our battle is against invisible worldwide powers that are constantly promoting anti-God thinking and anti-God behavior in us. The moral collapse of our present society, my brothers and sisters, is the visible manifestation of the truth that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan's influence is extensive. It reaches into our personal life, our family life, our social life, our political life. And as I mentioned, his methodology is threefold. He creates epistemological confusion. What is that? I'm going to explain it in just a little bit. I'm going to summarize what I said. He creates epistemological confusion that leads to theological compromise, which results in eschatological forgetfulness, hence the need for the helmet of salvation. Here's the explanation. By epistemological confusion, I mean confusion regarding who has final authority over our thinking and over our worldview. How do we know that which is true? Who has authority over your and my opinions? Is it the culture? Or is it God's word? That confusion then leads to the theological compromise. By this, I mean the following. Once you begin to question who has authority over your thinking and over your knowledge, epistemological confusion, then the compromise of truth becomes appealing and you begin to play with ideas that are clearly contradictory to God's word. Finally, all of this results in eschatological forgetfulness, which simply means this. We begin to forget that we Christians are pilgrims destined for a better world and that this is not our final home. Let me expand on this a bit more by returning to the historical illustration of Marxism. It's such a wonderful illustration. For Marx, your value as a person was determined only by your contribution to the collective. In other words, you have no value beyond your utility to the whole. Therefore, your views are valued only insofar as they contribute to the advancement of the views of the collective. Is that not what we're seeing today? Is it not true that there is an effort taking place right now in the culture at large to create narratives that are meant to force people into conformity and that if you speak up, you get shamed. Isn't that not the case? These are narratives that eventually become meta-narratives. Meta and a meta-narrative is an idea which is generally accepted as uh, the reference point from which you need to understand all of life. And the more people accept these ideas, the more difficult it is to stand against them because when these narratives become meta-narratives, then you have the perfect setup for the creation of a culture of shame. Is this a danger to Christians? Very much so. For us to conform to the ideas of the collective, of everyone. Here's why. The greater the pressure from these meta-narratives the greater the temptation to submit to, the, to their authority. 
then we are tempted to go along with it to avoid the shame, which leads to theological compromise, all of which contributes to a greater attachment to this world and a greater detachment from the world to come, eschatological forgetfulness. So how do we avoid these, these dangerous satanic temptations? You put on the helmet of salvation, which means that you must develop the three things that counter Satan's methods. Number one, you need epistemological clarity. The word of God and his promises are your final authority, nothing else. The word of God is your final authority. He determines how we think, how we think of everything. He determines how we think. Number two, you need theological courage. You need theological courage. You must not be afraid to live according to your biblical convictions. And number three, you need eschatological mindfulness. You must remember your final hope, which is what Satan wants you to forget. I want to develop this third one, this third point just a little bit. Christian, my Christian friend, friend, don't seek to get too comfortable in this world. You are a pilgrim. You are a pilgrim. You are just passing through. In fact, here's a warning for all of us. An ongoing effort to get too comfortable in this world may just be evidence that you are beginning to forget about the next. And here are Here's one of the main evidences that a Christian might be getting too comfortable in this world. The fear of man expressed in an excessive desire for self-preservation to the point that you're willing to compromise the things you believe. How do we deal with this fear of man? Consider what Jesus said. Pay attention because it has everything to do with the helmet of salvation. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, the Lord Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body, where? In hell. That's what it says. Do you see it? What is the solution to the fear of man? Well, it has to do with our hope of salvation. In other words, our attitude toward man here on earth is determined by our reconciled relationship with God in heaven. We begin to fear man when we start to forget our eschatological hope what is to come. And this is what the helmet of salvation is all about, my friends. It is about remembering that which is eschatological, the last things, the end days, our final home in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. This world is corrupted, and therefore you will experience much discomfort in it. In fact, you can expect it, but this world is also passing away. Don't get so caught up in all the current events that you begin to diminish your certainty of the promises of God concerning a better world in which righteousness dwells and Christ reigns in perfect peace. Don't let the present chaos of the world and the confusion and the decay discourage you from the hope of your salvation, which you cannot lose. Put the helmet of salvation on. Remember our hope and be courageous. Be courageous. I leave you with the, world's, with the words of a Puritan, William Gurnall. He said this, and I quote, The goat must browse for food where she is tied. Likewise, the sinner 
must feed on earth and earthly things to which he is staked down by his carnal heart, end quote. Christian, don't be like the goat. Don't be like the goat. Don't be like the world. Instead, set your mind on the things above where Christ is and do not lose sight of the hope of glory. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And as I finish, I just want to remind you that uh, I cannot make the assumption here that everyone sitting in this room has a saving relationship with the Lord. That is a very dangerous assumption to make. And so I finish by reminding you that there is only one way in which you can apply all the things that you've heard this morning. There's a starting point for everything. And the starting point for, for everything you've heard this morning is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who died for our sins upon the cross. The one who took upon himself the punishment that we deserved. The one who absorbed upon himself the wrath of God so that we might be forgiven. And then he rose again. And he ascended into heaven, and now he rules. He's exalted above all names. He's the name above, above every name. And this morning, I'm calling you, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, you this morning must repent of your sins and confess Jesus as Lord. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the simple yet timely reminder that we indeed are in a fight against spiritual forces of evil that manifest themselves in different ways and how desperate we are for the helmet of salvation. I pray for anyone in this room who might be tempted to lose their hope. There might be someone in here who, due to diverse circumstances in their lives, adversity, suffering, loss, or temptations, they might be walking a, a thin line in which they are considering maybe losing their hope, or they have begun a, a journey in which hope seems so far away. I pray that this morning you will call them back to obedience, and that they will take the helmet of salvation and begin to renew their thinking so that hope might be restored. And we thank you for the fact that our hope is unmoved because our hope has a name, the Lord Jesus, the one who stands above, above all things, the one who has been given authority both in heaven and on earth. And so we know that our hope cannot be destroyed. Help us to follow through, to live in accordance with your word, and to walk in a manner worthy of the call with which we have been called. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.